Hey guys, this week in my interview, I am sitting down with an incredible woman who doesn't really realize how incredible she actually is. This one is going to touch your heart and it's going to inspire you, especially those of you who have thought about, dreamed about, prayed about, set your intentions for starting a nonprofit. I am talking with Becca Stevens, the founder of Thistle Farms. And if you're not familiar with Thistle Farms yet, it's going to be your new favorite, not just because of the incredible products they make, but because of the story behind how those products came to be. I had the chance to visit Thistle Farms several years ago, and rarely in my lifetime have I been inside of a business that is so grounded in their purpose, who understands their why, who knows what they are doing and why they are doing. And what's so rad about Becca is the humility that she brings to this work. You'll see in the interview, I have a hard time getting her to explain how she's done what she does because she's so humble about this world-changing work that she's done. And I think that there's a lesson for us in that. I think this idea of making small moves intentionally every day, showing up for one person and seeing how that manifests into hundreds, if not thousands. Her story is incredible, and I know you're going to be inspired like I was. This is my interview with Becca Stevens. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. Typically, I would start by asking you to tell your story, and I do want to hear that. But I think I have this really beautiful memory of getting to visit y'all on, and I'm forgive me because I forget what it's called, but you do uh, like the meeting once a week. The circle? Circle. Uh, so I was in town. I'm really close with the team at Able, and I was in town meeting with them. And uh, they said, hey, we're, we're going to this thing. Would you like to come? And I was like, yes, I would. And I got to sit there and hear those stories and um, just really get the presence of you all doing something that was so much bigger than a candle that was so much bigger than serving coffee that was just integrated business in a way that really saw the women that you were serving with dignity and with love in a way I've never seen before. So I just want to honor what you've created because I've seen it and experienced it firsthand. And then I would love to hear how in the world you created this beautiful thing. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for coming to visit in our circle at Thistle Farms. That's a huge compliment to us. I mean, it's an honor. So I'm grateful. And I love, you know, we've been doing that circle for decades. And to think about all the people who have stopped into that circle and sat for a minute. And of all those people, there's very few that get 
the larger story beyond the programs mm-hmm. that it's you know, the story of Thistle Farms is a story of journey, you know, from our hearts to the world, from one individual woman to really imagining how healing might happen for women all over the world that carry those universal issues on their backs. Mm-hmm. You know, they just in shame and fear. And really, that is how I came to Thistle Farms and how I came to that circle. I wanted to create a place where women felt safe to make that journey with other women, supporting other women while they're doing their own work. I mean, I think community is the oldest entity for healing that we have ever known in this world. In my story, really, it really starts from that place where you're living in fear and shame and all of that. My dad was killed by a drunk driver when I was a little girl. And I went on to experience about three years of sexual trauma starting at about the age of six. Mm. And the gifts that I had in all of that were this included like a really loving mom and some amazing women that forgave me and loved me through a lot of, you know, what the fallout of all that trauma when you're a kid. And I went on to, um, you know, graduate Phi Beta Kappa College. I went on to be, graduate Vanderbilt Divinity School and get ordained. And in my heart, I knew really what I wanted was to start a simple community where we could sit in a circle and figure out what love looks like for us. Wow. So we, I, I mean, that was one of my questions coming into today was, was it a business first or was it serving the community? So it really started with that intention. Where, where did it like, before we get into how you have created this so wise structure, like such a wise way to do this, tell me, how do you pull together the first meeting? Like, you know, cause I, I mean, I'm thinking of listeners who have an idea in their heart, you know, maybe they feel like God is calling them to something greater and they're supposed to give back in a different way, but they're terrified of how to do that. How did you even begin? You know, one of the women just said to me the other day, one of the women who live in the program. So it began with a residential program in the circle, five women, and it just kept growing and growing. And about four years into it, we knew that sometimes it really is about the money. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That being poor is probably the most vulnerable, you know, to violence you can be or domestic violence or gender-based violence or trafficking, you know, all the systems that don't work so well. And it's about the money sometimes and the idea of like, we're just going to create jobs. If on average, the women that we're serving hit the streets around 15 years old, they're not going to ever get out of this unless we create this vision Yes, that, you know, people can buy their soap from us and find out that justice can be a way of life and we can do this. And it, that wasn't scary. So anyway, one of the women who lives in the program is just getting ready to graduate, said to me, I promise you, it was just like two days ago, she works in manufacturing and she said, I'm just outweighing my options right now. And I was like, yes, that is what we do. We outweigh our options. Yeah. You know, we think it to freaking death. Yes. yes. And, you know, I think the most practical and loving thing to do is to do something small and do it with a big heart, with optimism and not say like, well, it's not worthy because it's little. It doesn't change anything because it's little. Um, You know, we get caught up and we keep getting caught up with this idea of upriver. We have to keep doing everything upriver. And it's like, no, you can actually start where you are 
and then slowly make your way up river with a whole bunch of other people. Because if you're trying to go up river by yourself, you know, you're never going to get anywhere. Meaning the idea of upriver, do you mean sort of understanding systemically how those problems are occurring and then trying to affect them at their root cause as opposed to treating the symptoms of, of what is happening? So it's almost like imagining or knowing the need that you want to serve and getting overwhelmed by how big it is. Yes. Yes. You think of like human trafficking globally and it's like, okay, so what's the causes? How are we ever going to get there? And then people stay in meetings for years Mm. and they rewrite business plans and they can't seem to make any headway because it's a lot. Instead of saying what I was trying to say is that in order to take that journey, you gather some friends and do some small things and you start making progress. And pretty soon you get to talk to you about those issues too you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people. And it's like, that's the beauty of what I think at least is if we do this together and I'm a true believer that justice is a non-competitive sport, that everything we do, I should be able to give it to somebody else and say, this is exactly how we've done it. You know, let's do all this together and to keep creating, creating how to make partnerships. I, I mean, the I love these sort of stories. I think of the work you're doing. I think of Homeboy Industries, if you're familiar with what they're doing in LA. Yeah. I love any time that someone has sort of found a way to, you know, marry the work with, and, and I think that this might rub people the wrong way, but with the money. Someone told me this years ago, they said, the mission requires money. You can certainly serve people without money. You can do that with your hands and your heart and your local community. You can show up and you can do this. But to do something more expansive in the way that you have, the, the genius of tying it to a business model, which not only gives money, but also creates jobs, creates dignity, teaches skills to people who maybe didn't have them. Like it's just such a a beautiful way of doing business. And I'm not overstating this. I I, I really want to emphasize if you are in Nashville, if you're going to Nashville and you haven't ever been to Thistle, like go in and have a latte. Like just be blessed by the women who are going to serve you from behind. Like it is go buy all the things, but also just go be in that presence because the oh, the heart in that space is so beautiful. Well, one thing that you're saying that I just think would ring true for people that the way I grew up understanding it is, I remember, so my mom was 35 years old with five kids when my dad died. So five kids, she was working in a daycare center and she used to pray the tires wouldn't go flat. I have this memory of her praying that the tire wasn't going flat. And even as a kid that seemed kind of, beautiful and weird to me. Like what I understood was if the tire goes flat, we're not going to work. And if you don't go to work, the lights are going to get shut off. That's basically it. But she's praying for the tires not to go flat on really bald tires because the woman could not afford new tires. And she was in a weird way, almost left with prayer. Like her economic resources weren't big enough for her to be able to, you know, pray for world peace. She's just praying her tires don't go flat. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, if if you could just fix the fact that she has bald tires and she's riding around with five kids trying to get to work, if I could, if that could be fixed, you know, our whole lives would open up and our prayers and our hopes and all of that. And sometimes I'm glad you said it because sometimes it really is for women. It's about the money so I can get my kids 
you know, school uniforms. So I can drive with tires that, you know, have whatever they have. Tread. On their, tread. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't help on a podcast to run your hands in the school. And, um, you know, or healthcare or, you know, I want to get my nails done. Yes. I mean, whatever that thing is that reminds us we're beautiful and human and we can engage the world. That was important to me. But the other side of that is when women are coming together, create to create, which we have always done. I mean, women have come together. They call them sewing bees. So women can sit together and sew or go down to the river to wash clothes together. I mean, it's really old stuff is what happens when we come together and create. Not only are we creating economic independence for ourselves, we're healing communities. I mean, that's why three weeks in the pandemic, they turned to women and go, can you make masks for us? You know, and women started the circles and started gathering materials and bringing that together. We know what we're doing. And when women do this work together, they share stories. I mean, it's therapeutic. Yeah. It's revolutionary. All the data shows if you invest in women making things, you're going to heal communities. The truth is, if you rape a woman, it's an act of war. It's a way to kill a village. But if you invest in women and women businesses, especially for survivors, you're about healing the whole community. So take me back to you start with five women in this circle. And were you leading that? Were you leading out on that conversation? How did that feel? Yeah. Well, what I remember, this is funny. I, rem- I mean, it's been a long time since I've thought about it. But one of the first things we did so, you know, I mean, it's like, it's no big deal to invite five women to come live together. If you say the word home in a prison or jail, women cry. You know, if you say we want to take women who are survivors of trafficking, who have been prostituted, who are suffering with addiction, who know gender-based violence, and you can come live for two years rent-free as a community, no authority living in the house, women weep. So five women came together and I really took out a large piece of like that, um, it's like that brown paper. What do you call oh, it? Like, brown paper? Um, I know like craft paper, like on a roll. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes like a big, mm-hmm. a big roll. Okay, so you take a big roll of paper and rolled it, I rolled it out and we drew the outline of a woman's body. And the first gathering we had, we said, so whatever we want in this community, we'll draw inside the woman's body and whatever we don't want in here, let's draw it outside the body. And we all know what people put in there. You know, you want respect, love, sobriety, whatever you want inside, outside, violence, commodity, buying and selling of bodies, drugs, you know, abuse, all those things we want outside the body. And so if we want these things inside the body and those things outside the body, let's think about how we can create a structure so those things are inside the body. And the women developed most of the ritual and how we lived. And where did the house come from? So you had this idea, like, I want to, that's what I'm trying to unpack is like, where in the world, I I feel like, Becca, like, I feel like you're like, oh, I just did this thing. And then I built this massive company and we changed all these lives. And I know we do that, right? As humans, we sort of don't realize what a big deal it was to establish any of this. So, I mean, it feels so courageous. And it seems like in the retelling, you were just sort of leaning into faith and intuition and, and kind of what to do next. And, you know, just because something feels new, it's usually, if it's really powerful, it's really old. And so I tried to lean on the really old things that we know in this world, like love and like community, and that you can lead with love and it's powerful. And, you know, I mean, love 
we want, you know, our, our original mission was we want to be a witness to the truth that in the end, love is the most powerful force for change in the world. Mm. But I, I got a house from a friend. <laughs> you know, I mean, they were running like a uh, some kind of transition home, which obviously doesn't work for women who have this history of trafficking, especially, you know, I mean, if you're asking somebody that's been on the street to pay $125 a week to live in a house that's a recovery house, many times those women have to go out and hustle to get that money and they're not going to stay clean mm-hmm. or live truthfully with that kind of lifestyle or choice or whatever you want to say. So it wasn't working well. And I said, I just want to lease it from you for, I don't have any money, but just lease it for a dollar a year. And the house was close to the house I was living in. It was on the same street. And I knew I wanted this to be a residential community, no safe house, no halfway house, no treatment center, no shelter, just a house, Mm -hmm. just go live in a house. And the women moved in. We didn't change codes. We didn't do anything. We just had a house and the women stayed and they stayed so long. We had to open another one and another one. And, you know, it was, I mean, it just, it was a group of women who changed my life. That was 23, 24 years ago. Wow. And how did you find funding for that? Well, my husband is a songwriter in Nashville, Tennessee. I mean, he's a very Marcus Hummond, he's a beautiful songwriter in the Hall of Fame, all of that stuff. And he had a ton of friends who were in music business. And honest to God, those guys will raise money for just about anything <laughs> if you ask them. The songwriting community in Nashville is one of the nicest group of people you can be around. And there's some churches that were willing to go with me on it. And it wasn't that expensive to start with. Now, you know, I mean, our budget's whatever, $7 million a year to run all the operations and all our global partnerships and the national network and all of it. But at the beginning, you know, we could do it with a few fundraisers a year mm. and not have to charge the women a penny. Yeah. And at, so you, you have the first house, it's successful. You're seeing this change. You're opening the next when is the first time that you thought, or maybe someone else had the idea, we should turn this into a business or we should add a business well, component, I guess is a better way to say it. I bet almost every one of your listeners, and I'm sure you do, you have these safe places where ideas germinate. Mm-hmm. Like it could be a walk in the woods. It could be a bathtub. It could be, you know, right before I fall asleep in my dreams and my prayer time in the morning, whatever that is. And many, many times in my life for me, it is the bathtub. You know, I'm the mom of three boys and you can get in the bath and shut the door. And I don't care how, I mean, I have a horrible bathroom pretty much. It's like a 1940s bathroom, but it is my space. And I can go in there and just really think. And part of the way that I was finding healing and love in my own life and my own journey as a mom and going through this Oh God, you know, the scars that are internal that you carry with you for ever is healing oils, you know, to put healing essential oils in the bath. And I think that the first thought of creating healing oils and body bombs, it was like, okay, how can I do this and enjoy these things and make it part of my work? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, how can we do this? And so everybody can have this stuff. I don't want to be the one that's like selfishly using these oils and not sharing them with everybody. So how do I do this? And that's when we just started. And I was the chaplain. I am still, but I don't do it very much, but I'm a chaplain at Vanderbilt. 
and we had, you know, a little A-frame chapel and we started mixing as mostly just the, the most basic recipes in the whole world are with essential oils. They're so basic and easy. And we just started doing it and selling it to our friends. And we had one person there that was just, there was three of us that had kids and we were just playing, you know, somebody would watch the kids and we would stir lavender in the kitchen. And, you know, we wanted to call it Thistle Farms to represent the alleys and the streets and the places that are really rough that the thistle grows and thrives and how it still has that beautiful purple center that's, you know, Solomon, all his glory is not arrayed like one of those. And that's what the thistle was. And so we named it Thistle Farms and started selling it to all our compassionate friends and grew it into the largest justice enterprise the United States has run by survivors. Wow. And what, that, it's crazy. What year was it when you were, you know, in the A-frame stirring up the brew? 2001. 2001. And you tested out. And then, then if listeners are not familiar with your work, they may not understand the scale. Like they may think, oh, you just have some, no, this is an enterprise. But then, then we went to a bigger building and we hired like people that actually knew what the heck they were doing. <laughs> That's important. Is what I think. I think if you do something okay, people will come in and then do it better than yes, you. Yes, yeah. Which I love. I mean, that's founders, their worst thing is if they hang on to things and they think it's theirs, I think. I think you have to keep stepping back and taking deep vows of gratitude for everybody that's done it better than you. But we went to a bigger building. We We had our first national contract with Whole Foods. We started really understanding that the most powerful thing we had was our story, that we weren't a company with a mission. We were a mission with a company, and that changed the game for a lot of people. We went to Rwanda and started sourcing oils directly from survivors and made a bug spray. And then in about 2010, we'd gotten so big, we bought our first manufacturing facility. And, you know, we needed forklifts (laughs) and machinery. That's the we did. Yeah. We couldn't lift things anymore. It's crazy. And we had to have a logistics department and we had to um, hire people who were just going to be working on branding and just working on whatever internet sales. And it just grew. What I would say is it wasn't an overnight success, but it was a long walk that was as just as miraculous. Mm. Were there times in this process that you had those moments of how did I get here and how am I, this is so much responsibility and, or did you always feel like if I just keep walking in faith, I'm going to find a way through all of these big changes and evolutions? You know, honestly, like when I read the story of the Good Samaritan in the gospels, I promise you, I know that I'm the guy in the ditch. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I've never forgotten that, that I was the beggar. And I needed as much as anybody to believe that I could be in a community and you could talk about love and people would t- still take you seriously. And they would see you as faithful, even though you might they might not agree with you, that they would see you as capable, even though it sounds so fluffy, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And so I'm so grateful that there's still a place for me. I mean, I have sourced almost everything out. We have an amazing CEO now. I think I mean, met, they call is it a, it's a man? Uh-huh. Hal Cato. Yeah, I got I think I met him that day when I he happened to be there. 
Like, you know? yeah, he is a great guy. And so I get to still focus. Like I just got back. I mean, just two weeks ago, got back from a journey to Botswana. In the midst of COVID, I was still able to get there, celebrate with a group of women who are starting a brand new enterprise there. So now I get to go still sit in a very small circle and hear the first stories of women who are still dreaming. That's where my heart is. And that's where I believe ultimately, you know, all of us have to go. Our, you know, again, back to sometimes it's about the economics in war, in refugees, in immigration, in human trafficking. And the more we can keep creating um, with partners, you know, these small community of powerful survivor leaders, you know, for me at least, it changes world markets. It's better than anything called fair trade. It's this idea that women artisans can be the backbone of what freedom might look like for big groups of women. Everybody's reading in the news, especially these last few weeks, about the fear for Afghanistan mm-hmm. women and the fear of what it means to not have that freedom to gather and tell your story and speak your truth. Mm-hmm. And the fear of that being taken away. It's so powerful that it makes global news that a small, maybe a small group of women who were gathering in a remote village in Afghanistan can't gather anymore. That's how powerful it is. Because we know that if women aren't free to speak and aren't free to do the work they need to do to heal their families and communities, they will die. And without the women, communities will die. As things have grown and changed and it starts to do better and people become aware and you get, you know, the contract in Whole Foods and it's starting to hum and move along. Were there setbacks? Were there things? Because of course there were. I know there were because this is life and this is real life. But I think it's important for listeners to hear that because your story is one, there's so much hope and faith in everything that you're sharing. But were there times that you encountered you know, that you didn't know what you were going to do or that it got hard or that you felt unsure because I think that that's really important for women to hear as well. Yes, that's how I feel today. (laughs) (laughs) That is how I feel. Like, oh my gosh, there's so much going on and how do you navigate the waters? I still feel that like, and I think that's so good for us. I mean, that's what makes it a faith journey, right? I mean, if it's like, here's my 10-year path and I shall never veer from it, it's like, well, good luck with that. (laughs) Especially if you're working with communities, especially if you're working with people in recovery. So I thought I would tell you one story. Is that okay? Of course, yeah. But so there's so many, like you said, there's so many success stories and so many heroic women who are crafters, who are teachers, who are researchers, who are doing awesome work. But truly, about three or four years into the life of the company and community, I met a woman named Peggy Sue. And so, you know, I'm an ordained Episcopal priest, um, and I always go try to visit people, even if they aren't able to come into the community, if they're calling out, you know, you go visit and see people. And Peggy Sue was in the local hospital here in Nashville, Tennessee, for indigent folks, She had a feeding tube and she was chained to the bed. She was in state custody and she weighed about 85 pounds. And she was an amazing conversationalist. She had grown up partly Southern Baptist and she probably knew scripture better than I did. And she wanted me just to come talk for days. And, 
you know, she has that story that so many women have, which is the truth of what racism looks like and what poverty looks like and what unjust systems look like in many people's life. And it almost looked like all of that brokenness had just broken her, like physically, she just was a wreck. And um, we, she wanted to come to Thistle Farms, you know, it didn't happen. She died before, I guess, three or four days later, she didn't get any better. And the state gave me her box of ashes. They wanted, there was nobody to claim her body. And so I took them and invited, again, a small circle of women to come together. And I have done many, many services. I've buried um, my mom and dad, my sister. I've buried friends. I've buried so many women. I would never been so nervous. And I think it's because it felt like there's so much sadness here. Where's the hope? You know, like, and I just felt inadequate. I felt like this just, we all failed her. She failed herself. It's all a failure. That's what it felt like. Anyway, we gathered together and I had somebody that was going to sing something. Somebody was going to do something else. And I started the service and just said, you know, the Lord be with you. And then we all just started crying and I couldn't speak another word. It was like love was so thick in that space we were in. Words couldn't even cut through it. I have never had that feeling like this. And I was just overcome with this presence of God. Like when there is nothing else, God just fills this space. And you felt this presence of love filling our hearts. And I was like, if that is the worst the world has to offer, and you end up dying alone and getting a cardboard box, and love can do that, I will gladly do this work for the rest of my life and do it knowing that I have felt this and could possibly maybe someday feel it again. Mm. What a beautiful story. It's It just keeps that kind of transformation. It's for all of us. Yeah. It's for all of us to say, like, you don't have to be afraid. Even in those worst days, love, on your worst days, love can rush in and speak to you. It can be a surprise. It can be more abundant than you think. It can be a whisper. It can be a flower that you see on the side of the road. Whatever it is, I try to remember that, like, for anybody having a really hard day, if wherever you're hearing this from, love can speak into that powerfully. Yeah. Have you felt that? Yeah. You know what I was thinking of when you were telling that story is I was talking to my therapist, <laughs> I was talking to my therapist last week, and I was talking about this idea of we were talking about what do we want out of life or what do we think is the purpose of life or why are we here? And the thing that I have attached onto in the last couple of years is I want my why, and this is not my bigger purpose or why I think God put me here, but sort of what I want for my life is the simple idea. And I said this to him, I said, to make as many beautiful memories as possible with the people I love most. I just want it to be that simple, just to make beautiful memories with the people I love most. And I've thought that that's like such a guiding, great guiding principle. I have four kids and I keep that in mind all the time is to make these beautiful memories. And he said something which felt so divine and so profound and flipped my entire world like this. He said, what is your definition of beautiful? Because I have thought that beautiful memories are laughing and dinners and vacations and playing in the backyard, right? And immediately I thought of my grandfather died maybe four weeks ago from COVID. And my grandma had it too, and she lived. And my mom has been just, I mean, 
doing literally the Lord's work, taking care of her mom, who's very sick and trying to help her get better and managing healthcare. And my mom doesn't know this world and she's very confused and she just keeps showing up in this very hard season. And he said that to me and I was like, the heart is beautiful too. I don't know what it just like, if you're, your definition of a good life is beautiful memories, then the beauty also has to be the hard stuff. You know, I thought of my yeah. best friend whose mom died earlier this year and our group of girlfriends were very close and we all, you know, traveled to go to her mom's funeral and we sat with her when she cried and we have this beautiful redemptive story. Her first baby was born on Sunday. And so in this year, we've seen this loss and this birth and it's all beautiful. And so then it's about, can you hold space for both those things? And I love your story because if you're going to hold space for the day, it gets so big that you have to get a forklift. Then you also have to hold space for those moments where we find beauty in the loss and the grief and the pain. And like, for me, at least, isn't it the whole, I mean, there's a whole theology around that. There's the you know, it's the cracks where the light comes in. It's the imperfections that make us who we are. It's, you know, the weakest part of the tree that grows the most beautiful burls, you know, that everybody wants for the show pieces. So, I mean, it's, it's, I totally love your therapist already. And I need to get in front of <laughs> yeah, it was a very, it was a very helpful perspective for me. So what'd you pay for that advice? <laughs> I'm just teasing. I've paid all the money in the world, right? <laughs> tell me, tell me as you look towards the future, what is next? Because it sounds to me, I'm so inspired, not just by what you've created, but also what you continue to lean into and that it continues to evolve, not just for the business, but also for you and how you show up in these communities in small ways, like in Botswana or in bigger ways and, you know, maybe your involvement in different organizations. Sure. Be happy to. So, you know, like I did what I think almost everybody did during COVID. I wrote a book. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do during your COVID? I also wrote a book. (laughs) Everyone wrote a book. What, why would you not write a book during COVID? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So it's called Practically Divine. And it really is. Um, It's some of my mom's old sayings. It's the stories of the women at Thistle Farms and it's a journey. And it ends with a vision of what's next. You know, what's, what's the next piece of it, which is my favorite part is not to do a lot of strategic planning. That makes me sad. But what makes me happy is the idea of freedom to dream. And so this book has offered some new spaces for me to think and dream with lots of new communities, which I'm really happy about, and to do some workshops really around, you know, the practicality of life, you know, making your own oils, developing your own rituals like a tea party, things that bring the divine into our daily life in practical, real ways, and also to think about what it means to um, integrate small things again that we can do now that make us feel better and more activated and mission driven and all those things we want to be instead of thinking oh well if I can't quit my job and leave my family then I'm not a good justice person right you know what I mean yeah totally so that's what I'm excited about is engaging some new communities with new ideas and real practical things that we can be doing together you know, one of my goals this year is that 
I want to really start teaching people how to make sure that they're starting to make their own laundry detergent at home. We could change the world if we quit buying laundry detergent, I promise you. Oh, and no, so explain that. You know, think about all the plastic. Think of those huge plastic jugs. They're horrible. Right. And I keep going like, it's so expensive and it's ridiculous. Yes. You know, it's borax, soap flakes. It's very easy. And you could put lavender in it. You do it for cents on the dollar, you know, and you could use all your old, everything, all the stuff that you already have in your house and the old detergent jugs and just make your own and be done with right. it. Right. It'd be so fun if we like the radical thing we did was made our own laundry <laughs> detergent. It says so much because everybody has laundry. Yes. Yes. Everybody in the world has laundry. And instead of like, you don't even have to go outsource it to anybody. You, you could fix it. Anyway, it's the little things like that. And then big things like Oaxaca, Mexico and Lima, Peru and places that we have just started really new partnerships that we're going to be traveling to this year and working with. Someday it'd be really fun to do a podcast with you where the microphone's on one of the new women that we're working with yes, to hear their story absolutely. And, and how they're a craft hero in their own ways. It, Cause it's, it's, it's my favorite thing to be like in the back country somewhere. And all of a sudden someone tells the story she was 16 and raped and their family kicked them out because they were ashamed of them for that and what that meant for their lives and how they're coming back around to claiming themselves again. And I get like going, yes, amen. I mean, it's church for me. It's so freeing. And you go, you know, you just want to say like, I've heard that story in 20 different languages. And as long as we can keep sharing it with each other and the other person says, you are so beautiful you got this. You are not alone. I am so sorry that happened to you on behalf of all humanity. Then there's still hope to keep going. Here's my question as, you know, as we're, we're having this conversation and there's so much inspiration here and there's like, I'm inspired. I know listeners are inspired. If you hear this, you want to make laundry. I mean, for sure. I was like, I can probably (laughs) get some people on Instagram to care about that with us, Becca. (laughs) What if you're hearing this and you're like, I want to get involved. I want to get involved in my local community. And I always think that when we feel a calling on our heart, that we should lean into the things that like affect us. So I am, and you are deeply devoted to women and working with women and how to empower women and lift them up and all of those things. But someone hearing this may be deeply impassioned about climate change or saving animals or, uh, you know, the disparity in healthcare, uh, just like all of these different things. Right. And I think that whatever fires us up, that's what we're supposed to lean into. But maybe you're listening to this and you're very inspired and you're fired up about a cause, but you have no idea where to start. Make your own laundry (laughs) detergent. You get your essential oil from Thistle Farms, order it from Thistle Farms. You will will help the environment a thousand fold. You will be empowering yourself. You'll be having prayer time while you're stirring the batch, you'll be feeling empowered. Like I'm independent. I'm taking care of myself with this. No, I'm saying that's how small I want to start people. I really want to say it's like that basic instead of like, you know, signing up for something 
that you're not really going to do at some point anyway. And I think the world is in such a state right now. It's really, really hard just to go out and volunteer. It's not like it was. So my, I will give you maybe top three. One, social media advocacy is the best. We, that's how we've gotten more referrals, more sales, the more people that share our story of hope. I'm Becca Stevens on Instagram. It's very easy. If anybody DMs me, we'll get you hooked up with Thistle Farms. We have like a, whatever it's called, like a cheerleading list. Yeah, Yeah, whatever. I think they're cheerleaders. I'm not sure what that's the, the official term, but it's people who are willing to repost some stuff that we do. That's huge. And it's store, always stories of hope, always stories of great women who are doing great work. And we need people on that freedom train with us. Pray, 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 pray. I think how we live follows what our intentions are and our intentions come out in our prayer. So if we begin with that, like I'm praying for you, I'm loving you, I'm thinking about you. That's the second most important thing. And the third thing really is it matters where you spend your money and your time. So be intentional about where you're spending your money and your time. Don't think that you're like feel inspired by us and then go get your soap at Target. Order it from us. We are not, by the way, plastic free yet. That's one of our goals is to figure out how to continue to be more friendly in how we ship our stuff, but we're not there yet. But that's how we keep going. That's how we are growing this and we need people. Yeah. And I love that you said that it's worth mentioning too, that it does making those choices really consciously does require a lot of time inconvenience. And one of the things, you know, I'm an author and I'm super grateful for every partner who has helped me sell books, but I'm becoming way more intentional about driving to my driving to my local bookstore and getting books from them because they are a local vendor. Now it is way more inconvenient than having something shipped to my house overnight, you know, that I could just open an app and do the thing. But it's the same as only getting coffee from local coffee shops and supporting local business and being conscious of black owned businesses and woman owned businesses. And and you, you have to be intentional. It requires slowing down. And it is inconvenient sometimes because it's so freaking easy, right? To do Amazon or Target or whatever, but it is where you spend your money is, is how you show what matters. So I love that you said that because it's worth saying too, when you make a choice in that way, just start with one thing, just start with one area. So like recently I started learning about toxins and products. And if you ever do that, where you can sort of scan a beauty product and then you see what's in it. And basically you just have to throw away everything you own because it's all bad. (laughs) It's all bad. In doing that, when I first did it, I got very overwhelmed because I was like, everything's wrong. And I had to make myself slow down and just go one thing at a time. Like, okay, let's just start with skincare. Let's just start figuring out your skincare routine and get that really clean. And then we're going to move to the next thing as opposed to deciding I'm only shopping local. I'm only, that's a great goal but give yourself steps to get to a bigger place. Just start with one thing that you can intentionally choose in your life. So what did you do about the skincare? So there is, my doctor actually told me this. There's an app called Think Dirty, which sounds funny, Uh but it's an app on your phone. Uh, I started to like get my phone to show you, but Think Dirty. And it scans products based on the barcode and it'll, it rates them on a scale of one to 10, like how many toxins are in them. So 
zero to three, it shows up as green. So it's like, this is great for you. And then four to six is yellow. And then above that, it's red. And you would be shocked. You would, or maybe not, because what you do, that you can go to the what you perceive to be like the cleanest stores. They'll call it clean beauty and you'll scan it and find out it has something in it that's terrible for you. One thing that you can do that's really easy is if you shop online with Thistle Farms, the bug spray is 100% natural. Kids can use it. Adults can use it. Nice. And it tested 99.7% effective. It won um, an independent testing, FDA testing, beat out all the other natural bug sprays. Yeah. And while you're there, you can get the soaps, you can get candles, yes. you can get candles, you can, and we have 30 global partners and we ship all out from the same place. So you can get everything. I mean, at least a lot of your home and bath and body care stuff at one time, because I agree with you. It's like, I also don't have all day long to work on it. Right. Right. Totally. Totally agree with you. That's awesome. Yeah. I love, man, you have blessed us with stories blessed us with inspiration and given us some really practical advice. So I just want to acknowledge the time, Becca, I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm grateful that I got the chance to speak to you because I mean, I probably sat in that circle two years ago or more, and mm-hmm. then, you know, got to connect with some of your team that was there that day, but haven't ever had the chance to meet you. So when you came across as an option, I was like, Oh yes, I want to talk to her. So I'm really glad that we got the chance. You are a beautiful person and you have had so much great influence and I'm really grateful that I got to sit and meet you. And someday I really would love to hear you talk to one of the women. Absolutely. That maybe, yes. That would be so much yes. fun, like a year or so. From I now love sometime. that idea. I keep hoping that I'm going to get out to Nashville. I've got friends there. So I'm hoping when things calm down a little bit to get out and visit. So maybe you'll be in town and we can connect and have coffee and it would be so nice. You know, you know where to, you know, I'll buy you a cup of coffee at the best coffee shop around. (laughs) Thank you so much, Becca. Have an awesome day. Thank you. The Rachel Hollis podcast is hosted by me, Rachel Hollis. Our show is edited by Andrew Weller with additional production support by Sterling Coates. Our executive producer is Cameron Berkman. The Rachel Hollis podcast is a 3% chance production.